Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. In 1932, a Cambridge academic named QD Liebes published a book about popular culture. This may not seem all that unusual until you consider that this is the 1930s and pop culture was not something that people thought was worthy of study. Shakespeare, Jane Austen, modernist poetry, yeah, absolutely. Disposable, low-brow novels read by the masses, not so much. In spite of this, Cutie Levis published her study called Fiction and the Reading Public. It was basically an attempt to understand the appeal of the best-selling novel. Who bought bestsellers? Who wrote them? And what did this all say about readers and culture more generally? What made the book even more unusual was its author. Queenie Dorothy Levis was a 26-year-old woman, just finished her doctorate, who published what would become a major literary and social study at a time when the field was overwhelmingly male-dominated. The book has stayed in print since it was first published, and it's really essential reading for anyone interested in the history of pop culture and literature. Now, if you're expecting at this point that fiction and the reading public is a book which boldly blazed a trail and argued for the merits of popular culture, you might be a little disappointed. Cutie Levis loathed popular fiction. For her, best-selling novels were destroying culture, and society was being assaulted on all sides by the crass and facile media of radio, cinema, newspapers, magazines, and she did not hold back in her criticism. Of one bestseller of the time, she knows that it exudes vital energy as richly as a manure heap. One best-selling writer exhibits a crude, ill-furnished mind, Notice the pitiful attempts at analysis with the set of terms gleaned from such superficial sources as the newspaper. And she really hated newspapers. But these were the novels read by the masses, bought in huge numbers, which meant that it was up to a tiny, elite minority of intellectuals, such as herself, to do nothing less than save culture. For Levis and many of her contemporaries, there was quite clearly a lot at stake. If true art and culture were under attack, then fiction in the reading public was Cutie Levis fighting back. I talked to Dr. Bernice Murphy about this. Okay, well, I'm Dr. Bernice Murphy of the School of English, Trinity College, Dublin. I'm a lecturer in popular literature, um, and to my knowledge, the first and the only dedicated lecturer in popular literature, certainly in Ireland and for a long time in the world. And um, I am also director of the MPhil in popular literature. Times have changed. As a popular literature researcher and lecturer, Dr. Murphy is basically doing the exact opposite of Levis. She's firmly establishing and celebrating popular fiction's important place in literature. Well, I think it's important that popular literature is considered part of the story of literature. You know what I mean? Because it is. Uh, the way in which we view the world is, is, is shaped by the kind of the forms of reading and viewing material we take in. And when such a, a vast swathe of that is actually what we call popular fiction, to leave that out of the academy is just really profoundly short-sighted and is not giving you a fair representation of what, what is actually happening or what has happened in the past. Now, it might seem that that's the end of the story. Cutie Leavis's work is an interesting historical document and things have changed. But then they haven't really, in a lot of ways. 
fiction in the reading public is still an important study for lots of reasons. Firstly, there's the fairly contradictory aspect of the whole book. Essentially, it's a really detailed study of popular novels trying to convince people that there's definitely no point in doing really detailed studies of popular novels. Levis may have ultimately failed in her goal, but in doing so, she opened a door. Just by agreeing or disagreeing with her, the whole topic of popular culture is brought up for discussion and debate. Secondly, there's the fact that this is all still a pretty divisive area. To lots of people, it may seem pretty clear-cut that the study of popular culture, of best-selling novels, pop music, TV, film, it just has to be part of understanding our culture. But that wasn't always the case, and for lots of people today, it, it still isn't. So, for example, studying English literature in a university seems pretty uncontroversial today, but then, only a century ago, it was still a relatively new discipline, and it was fighting to be considered intellectually equal to philosophy or classical studies. Even the idea of reading a novel, any novel, has only really been a respectable activity for the last 150 years or so. For much of the 19th century, reading novels was time-wasting at best, if not very morally dubious. It was for women and the lower classes, certainly not something a well-educated man would waste his time on at the expense of history or biography or other non-fiction. And this hasn't changed. People are always very resistant to new aspects of popular culture being given an intellectual, academic standing. Over the decades, it was begrudgingly admitted that, all right, fine, you could be critically insightful about film and then maybe television. And it's more recently still that comic books have been admitted, generally given the more respectable title of graphic novel. Or even computer games. Can you do a PhD on Halo or Grand Theft Auto? Well, yeah, why not? But a lot of people will still be a little suspect. For Levis and her contemporaries, just as for Dr. Murphy and others working in this area today, the battle is really over the word popular. Well, I think first of all, it, it sort of undermines the fact that it's a mistake to think of it as an either-or proposition. It's not a case of, you know, uh, devaluing what you might call serious or kind of literary fiction at the expense of elevating popular fiction. I think to get a truly well-rounded sense of contemporary culture and even culture in the past, you need to have a sense of what's happening uh, within both spheres. And of course, I say both, but they're intrinsically linked and related. What exactly is popular fiction? Fiction that sells in large numbers, but how many copies is that? Books that are somehow less literary, but then what makes a novel literary exactly? Maybe books that are less serious, more entertaining, but not quite as original? Well, maybe, but not necessarily at all. Maybe popular literature is a contradiction in terms. Literature is high art, so it can't be popular. Popular works can't be literature. In any case, a lot of these distinctions are they're only really important for book retailers, not for readers. Having said all that, one useful way of looking at what makes something popular is to consider it in relation to genre. So, you know, horror, science fiction, detective fiction, and so on. The thing about popular fiction is nine times out of ten, you can judge a book by its cover. It, it can be readily categorized into a particular genre or subgenre, and I think that's a really useful way and a very, a very obvious and a very useful way of thinking about popular fiction. Whereas literary fiction is often a bit more nebulous and more, and more broadly based and could not, ne not necessarily could be pinned down to one particular genre. Popular fiction by and large usually is. But what happens when those categories break down? What if, God forbid, good respectable literary authors start writing zombie novels or science fiction? Well, this is something that has been talked about a lot in recent years. 
So much so that there is actually a term for it, genrefication. Um, I think in particular in a contemporary US literary culture, you have a generation of writers in their late 30s and early 40s who actually don't really see boundaries between literary fiction and genre fiction. People like Colson Whitehead, you know, acclaimed literary author who's written alternate history and a zombie novel. Um, we have, uh, you know, uh, lots of authors like, uh, you know, Jonathan Lethem, for instance, or Juno Diaz who play around with, you know, or Michael Chabon who, you know, engage with comic books. And, you know, they, I think there's a, I think in general, as popular culture has more and more, and certain types of what we might call nerd culture have become more and more mainstream, you have writers for whom, who really, you know, see it as, as, as an opening up of the literary novel in a way. And I think particularly literary novels that are becoming more plot dependent in a very genre-y type way. Do you think then, if there is a process of accelerated genrefication, if you want to call it that, do you, do you think... <laughs> like someone falling um, into a nuclear reactor. Yeah, <laughs> some sort of chain reaction. He's genrefying. Do, do, do you think that then, where does that go? Or where do we end up in 20 years' time, 50 years' I think time? It's, I think it's really exciting, particularly for literary fiction. Um, my own favourite genre, horror. There's some incredible stuff happening in sort of more, uh, maybe more niche horror um, or more small press horror. And I think it's, it's if anything, um, it's becoming, it's always been, you know, like any genre has always had great literary potential, but you're seeing fascinating stuff happening and really amazing stuff with language. Um, so I think it's, it can only benefit, you know, both literary and popular fiction. But what happens if everything becomes so homogenized that there's just no diversity anymore? If the only books being commissioned are Hunger Games knockoffs, if the only choice in the cinema is between the 18th X-Men film and the 12th Avengers installment, will there be a backlash? I think that's a fair, a fair thing to worry about. I mean, um, I think particularly when it comes to popular fiction in the global sense, I think there's a bit of a question about exactly that kind of homogenization and maybe certain type, types of writing and certain types of preoccupation, like superheroes in particular, but a, a particular, a very American-centric view of, of, of sort of genres that is predominating at the expense of, you know, maybe more uh, indigenous uh, kind of perspectives or writers writing in languages other than English. I think that, I mean, there are many authors who were very successful and very big sellers, like Someone like say, I would argue someone like say Gillian Flynn here wrote Gone Girl. I just think that's an incredibly good novel, no matter how you look at that. That is constructed to such a degree of kind of precision that it's remarkable and it's also very well written. Um, so I think it's a mistake. It would be a mistake to just dismiss something because it has been successful. But at the same time, I think we have to be alert to work that's emerging, genre, particularly genre work that's emerging from the margins, and that we're not, I guess, missing it. I mean, the nature of publishing is they will go for, um, you know, what they think will sell in high volumes, understandably. And that's that's how it works, you know. So if literary and popular fiction are blending together in new and exciting ways, then what should we be reading? There's some really interesting stuff happening in, in science fiction at the moment. Science fiction is broadening out and becoming, I think, uh, I, I think on a global level, becoming really interesting as well. So stuff like um, The Three-Body Problem, which was the winner of the Hugo Award a few years ago, uh, a Chinese, Seizing uh, uh, Lu, I hope I haven't mispronounced that, but that's the, the author's name and the translator is Ken Liu. So I think that's really interesting. And I'd have to recommend a horror novel as well because I absolutely love horror. Uh, and this is just pure indulgence, but um, there's a really amazing, um, very meta horror novel called Head Full of Ghosts by an author called uh, Paul Tremblay. 
from last year, which is, uh, I think, one of the most interesting American horror novels in quite some time. So definitely not the type of books that Q.D. Levis would have recommended. Things have come a long way since the 1930s, but so many of the same arguments are still relevant, and not just for literature, but for all forms of popular culture. Are we being force-fed a diet of commercialised rubbish, a culture industry built for the profit of big business at the expense of creativity and originality? Can art and literature be subversive and challenging and still find large audiences? Can the supposedly divided worlds of the popular and the highbrow learn from each other? Is our culture dumbing down, as is so often claimed? Nobody reads poetry anymore. Young people are too busy looking at YouTube to read the classics. But then, doesn't every generation say that? And anyway, can't we do both? Fiction and the reading public captured in the 1930s a debate that we all take part in at one stage or another. It's a debate that starts seemingly innocuously over popular culture, but very quickly becomes about education, morality, class, ideology, politics. Like all the best debates, it's controversial, complicated, and sometimes involves zombies. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thanks so much for listening. If this is the first episode you've heard, well, you're in luck. There are three previous episodes ready to listen to. Make sure to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. They're out every second Monday. The show is really building up a following, which I'm so excited about. It's been in the top 100 arts podcasts in Ireland on iTunes, and I've got some really positive feedback. So if you'd like to help keep the show growing, there's one very simple thing you can do. If you're listening on iTunes, go give it a rating and review. It'll take maybe 30 seconds and really help the show to reach a wider audience. I would be incredibly grateful. Um, and of course, tell your friends, family, co-workers, strange relatives, casual acquaintances, you know, whatever does the job. Special thanks this week to Dr. Bernice Murphy. She has just published a book, Key Concepts in Contemporary Popular Fiction, which I highly recommend. It's a short introduction and overview of the whole area. If you want to know more about everything discussed on this episode, or you just want to make sure you know your steampunk from your slash fiction, your street lit from your penny dreadful, then go pick up a copy. Links are on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. That's W-T-T-E, as in Words to That Effect, podcast.com. More fantastic Irish music in this episode, this week from Philip Coleman and from Nouveau Noise, who have just released a great new album you're hearing in the background right now. Links to all the tracks are on the website. You can also head there for more details on the show, related articles posted throughout the week, and you can sign up to the newsletter, which is full of all the literary and cultural insights you've been missing in your life. You can also click the link to my Patreon page, the crowdfunding website, which I'm using to help support the show. I have some great rewards you can get for different levels of support, so have a look. And finally, the show is on Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.